I don't know. I think that grit's a really important thing. And I think that all your failures help you with your successes. Welcome to the Corner Booth, where conversation is on the house and everybody has a story to tell. Reading has always been a huge part of my life, and from the time I was very young. It was my dad tucking me in to sleep at night as we pored over The Hobbit together, or maybe the two of us struggling to conquer the pages of my latest choose-your-own-adventure book. It was my mom taking my sister and I to the library on hot summer afternoons to participate in reading programs, book clubs, and even enjoy a little free air conditioning. Studies show that children who are read to at home or spend time reading with their parents enjoy a substantial advantage over children who aren't or don't. And nobody understands this better than my friend, Dr. Erica Burton, the wonderful woman behind Stepping Stones Together, the revolutionary online beginning reading program that gives parents the tools required to instill a love and commitment to reading all the while creating an essential and invaluable bond with their child or children. Want to teach your kid to read in just 60 days? All it takes is a 15 to 20 minute a day investment with the Stepping Stones Together program. Don't believe me? Come on then, let's go get a second opinion. Because today, the doctor is in the corner booth. I myself am so far removed from an elementary school or a preschool setting. What is it about the way reading is being taught traditionally that's failing kids in some capacity today? So it's not, that's a really big question. It's not that schools are failing kids. It's that teachers are held to such rigorous standards that aren't necessarily applicable to every child's needs. And so that individualization that used to be something that teachers could find time for within a day is no longer available to them because they're held to these rigorous standards that may not be necessarily appropriate, as I said, to each kid at that point in their developmental place. And so kids are learning, for example, how to read with learning phonics, learning like a systematic phonics approach, or they also may be learning reading comprehension separate from that. And they may be working on writing separate from that. And then they're also learning songs and learning how to blend and things like that separately. So they really don't see how all those pieces fit together. And what what's a detriment is that there's not usually this huge block of time for literacy to emerge in a really natural way. And so kids are a little confused. And also the English language has over a thousand different rules to the sounds that letters make together. And so that's confusing in itself. And not all of those rules make sense, especially, you know, even no. as an adult. No, they don't. And, and there's, you know, there's words that they've never encountered before. And then, you know, they're, they're trying to use the one rule that they learned from a systematic phonics approach and they just, they're totally lost. And then it becomes frustrating. And when you're frustrated and you're a new reader, you, you shut down. And so, and you don't want to try again. And so that's kind of where my program came in. 
I saw this need for stepping stones together to be that part where, you know, additionally, reading comprehension is at the core of learning to read because you don't learn to read so that you can't respond. You learn to read so that you can internalize and, and process and then share it in your own special way and understand it. If you can't do that, if you can't make sense of the words that you're reading and share your perspective or share a deeper comprehension of that, then it, you're kind of missing the point. And then it doesn't become something that's gratifying for the reader. And so then it's lost as well. And teachers in a classroom of 20 kids or more can't ask those really deep, higher order thinking questions to every kid in the class. They can touch to one to two kids you know, in any given session but they're not able to reach everyone, a parent can. A parent can spend 15 minutes a day with their kid learning together and ask those higher order questions to get them on the right track to be successful with the reading process. And so my program focuses on learning to read, write, and understand all in the same 15-minute time block which is essential to the process. And then having fun. Reading shouldn't be something like anything else. We want our kids to especially when they're younger, to learn by doing and to learn while they think that they're having a really good time. So doing something, for example, the games that I have traditionally in a classroom, it's you get a ring and you, you read each word again and again and again until it's memorized, right? But there's no connection to something, an experience they've had, that word, to get them to remember it. So, you know, we say in general for anyone to learn anything, it needs to be, you need to learn it in three different ways and, and see it three different ways. And so a kid who's learning a new word, it'd be really fun if they learned it while moving. Because when we move, we're, we're connecting to something. We're having an experience. When we connect with a family member and we're playing something, for example, um, we're playing, let's say, a game where we're, we have to find a word and then, you know, run to the other side as fast as we can and, you know, put the word down and then go get another word and, and we're both getting the same word. Or we're playing Simon Says and we say, put boy on your on your forehead or put boy on your touch. Like you're connecting and then the next time you encounter that word boy, you're going to say, oh yeah, like I remember mom or dad or sister or brother put that on their forehead or put it on their body, you know, and it's like a funny memory that then connects to long-term memory. It's smart to sort of, is that, would the word be gamifying almost the learning yes. process? So it's less of a drill. It's less of a task and more of something that the kids are interested in doing. Exactly. And it also has to be the stories that children read, especially at a young age, have to be of high interest to them. So a lot of the books that we have for the what's called a pre-emergent learning level, they're all about like nonsensical combinations of words to get them to blend different sounds together and to get them to, to recognize rhyming in words and to understand organic sentence structures. But we're doing it from a way that's nonsensical. So how do we expect a kid to get the reading comprehension piece of that? So the books that I've designed, they have multiple intended things about them that get kids to take ownership. For example, they're in black and white. So they're printable and there are also books that you can view online on an iPad or tablet or anything, any technological device, your phone. And they're black and white so that you, the child can bring the color either through coloring or through imagining what something would look like with the color that they've interpreted that picture to have. The second thing is most books that are written for this age are, they're not funny. And kids that age, they they like to laugh and they, like we all do. So they're the characters in the books that I've created, first of all, are all done by the same illustrator. 
which helps just like when you're learning anything. If you have consistency, it makes it more approachable as well as you have a sense of understanding right away. And so the pictures are all very similar in terms of design. And then they're high interest concepts. So kids at this age are interested in fairies, in princesses, in sports, in transportation, in animals, in superheroes. And, you know, there are very few books like that at the pre-emergent level, those books that say, you know, I can read books. Another thing is the sentence structure is very similar. So each there's 30 books per series and there's an A, a B and a C series. And kids are able to pick between 30 books that all kind of share the same vocabulary. And the vocabulary is from the dull series of words. There are 220 words in the English language that you need to memorize because they're so frequently encountered. 55 to 75% of all words in a newspaper, for example, are these words. And so it's almost like learning them like math facts. They're either words you can't sound out or words that we encounter so frequently that if you know them just automatically, you will have a lot less frustration with the words that you don't know and you have to sound out. And that's the way the program was designed. It sounds like more than just a lot of thought and care went into this, a lot of actual science and research. Tell me a little bit about your history and your background and who you are, doctor. Sure. So I got into education in a roundabout way, which many, I think, educators do. I was in college and I was preparing to go into law school and decided that I took the pre-LSAT and, and just... I. I felt like if this is what law school and being a lawyer is going to be about, I don't think it's for me. And I started volunteering in a school and it was the most amazing experience. The teacher at the time was so warm and accepting of someone coming in with new ideas. They were working on forming a paragraph. And so she said, you know, what, what do you think about helping kids to understand what goes into a paragraph? I'm like, well, isn't it a little bit like a hamburger? And this isn't even something that I learned in my education courses through my formative years. It was just something that made sense from a third grade perspective, which was the classroom I was volunteering in, that if you have a hamburger, you can't put ice cream in a hamburger, it's not going to taste right. Well, maybe it would to some of the kids, but you know, in, in general. And so I said, a paragraph, it needs to start with a bun. So that topic sentence needs to include what's going to go in the hamburger. And then the culminating sentence needs to, to additionally bring that hamburger together. And the kids really got it. And she's like, I think this is a field for you. And so I said, okay, I'll think about it. And I went home and, and really thought, okay, I, I, I think I want to do this, but I was an English major undergraduate undergraduate with a psychology degree, which is good for working with kids, but I obviously needed a degree. And I started, um, I moved to Los Angeles and there was a reduction in class size at the time where every K to three classroom had to have one teacher per 20 students. So it was a huge, they, they had to have an increase in teachers. And so they had us take a test and basically interviewed us. And, you know, if you had a passion, an undergraduate degree, wanted you to start doing something very unique, which I think more education schools that promote any sort of teacher education, this is a unique and really realistic way to do it as opposed to just straight student teaching where there's not a lot of autonomy for it in any way. They had every teacher start with a mentor teacher, so a seasoned teacher who'd been there multiple years with master's degree or above, every single day come to our classrooms and supervise us. But then we had our own classrooms and we had our own aides and we were going to school at the same time. So I started my master's that way. And it, it was great hands-on experience as well as you know learning and 
applying what I learned in the classroom. When I finished that year, it was in a year-round school. It was an amazing experience. I'd completed enough courses to receive my master's degree, but I was moving back to Illinois at the time, and there's a lot less classes that are required to complete a master's degree in Illinois, ironically, than California, because there's a lot of, of classes on different ethnicities that are required on ESL that are required on just understanding the cultures of a school in California, public school versus in Illinois. And so I came back and finished my master's in Illinois. And then just, I, I was in a school that really, um, I, I was in a hundred percent African-American community in the inner city of Chicago. And I'd come from the inner city of, of California in Hollywood, but it was quite different in that the families didn't trust me in Chicago at all. I was very different in their opinion. And I was hired actually, ironically, as kind of this teacher that was someone, I, they, they had to meet a requirement to hire teachers who were not of a different race at the time. And so I started teaching and, and loved working with these kids. And I just realized like my administrator was never there and she was never helpful in providing me with any support. And I saw all the other teachers struggling too. And in this school, I, um, my sister at the time, I'm 11 years older than her. She was in seventh grade and I was in elementary school in the you know inner city. And she had to do a service project and they had to raise money and then donate it somewhere. And I said, why don't we do, I was teaching a first grade classroom. I had 41 students and no aid. And I had spent all of my money teaching, buying things for teaching. And I said, you know, why don't you have the school come and do a one on a day one-on-one -on -one reading with my class? And they did. And it was like this huge thing in Chicago public school bulletin that month. And these kids raised like $5,000 to buy technology supplies for the kids and, and books for our classrooms. And they read with my kids for the entire day, which these kids were not used to. And they, they had never had this um, before. These are kids who were total latchkey kids who did not have, most of them didn't have parents. Most of them were not picked up from school. And it, it was in a gang area that I was in. And so I just started to notice that I really wanted to get to do something more to make a bigger difference. And so I started my doctorate program at Loyola and was still teaching. And after a year in this school, it was just, I confiscated a 38 millimeter handgun. I saw kids, unfortunately, beat with belts by their grandparents. This was at an elementary school? And, and you you, deep, com you confiscated? At, yes. Wow. Yes. This is that. And I'm not going to obviously share the name of the school. The sure. school has been restructured. Different things have happened. But this was before certain laws were in place that prohibited these types of things. And it, it was a, a really scary time to be a teacher, but also it was an eye-opening experience for me to want to do more, to be, to grow from my learning experience. And so I started teaching in Oak Park, which in Chicago, it's it had similar populations, but also I kind of was a blend of very high socioeconomic and very low. And I was working on my doctorate program there and realized that Again, I was in a school that could, the administrator could do so much and was doing so little. Like all my experience in my administrative program was that administrators should be in the classrooms and during the, the after school hours should be doing all the administrative bulk work, if, if, if possible. Obviously, day to day things change. And I found, I started a, a program there looking at standardized test scores where I saw that all of my kids who were not showing up on a daily basis had, you know, terrible attendance rates and had behavior problems. Those were the kids who were not coming to school 
after eating breakfast. Those were the kids who did not get a good start to their day. And so I, I worked on a grant and um, got support for a program called, oh my God, I'm blanking on the program name now, but this program called Second Step, where it was, it's, a, called a, it's a behavior management program. Basically, it gives kids the tools to understand empathy and understand emotional control and all the things that usually we see modeled in homes that sometimes gets lost, especially in today's world where technology rules so much of our lives and things kind of get lost. And unfortunately, some of those skills of problem solving get kind of left at the doorstep. And so teaching these kids these skills and getting them a breakfast program changed the whole projectile of how these kids performed. Their ISID scores went up. The program's still continuing in the school that I left. And then I started a mentor program there because, again, these kids needed to be empowered to be leaders. And the only way to do that is to model that. So I did that. And then I said, you know what, I really want to go into administration. And I did. And I was actually 23 when I became an administrator. So I'd only been teaching for, for four years, three and a half actually. And I just kind of went for a job interview at, on a whim and I got the job and I became the youngest administrator in this district. It was a pre-K through eighth grade building. And I was in charge. What that means is they, they didn't have administrative offices And so I became both in charge of special education, leading meetings when children are reviewed because they're struggling academically, socially, emotionally, obviously with someone to support me from a cooperative, which it's basically many districts pay specialists in psychology and other areas of emotional health to support the education piece and help file things. And so I'd, I'd be in charge of that as well as discipline and, and other things and finish my doctorate, which my focus actually in my doctorate degree was that I wanted to understand in Illinois in particular, I'd been thrust into this position of being in charge of special education with a doctorate degree, but only one class of my teaching had anything to do with being an administrator in special education and understanding the special education curriculum. Whereas in an elementary education, you're given an understanding of, you know, what what's a good math curriculum, what's a good reading curriculum. But with special education, it's just very brief. Here are the laws. That was my course, the laws of special education, not really understanding the pieces of what makes a good special education teacher and what helps those students exceed their, you know, IEPs, individualized education plans. So my whole dissertation was focused on how do administrators who are in charge of special education, what are, they, what are their thoughts on their doctoral programs preparation for them or their master's program? Because most people with a doctorate have a master's degree. And what I found was that it was baptism by fire for almost everybody. And I actually was influential in changing Loyola's program to include more than electives for special education in their doctorate programs after completing my dissertation, which was a cool thing. So that's, in a nutshell, how I received my doctorate and how I became a doctor. There's this pattern of cause and effect there where you recognize a problem and then find a solution, create a solution for it. Was there a particular catalyst for creating stepping stones together? Absolutely. The driving event for me was definitely my daughter. She was five at the time and struggling to learn how to read. So she was able to rhyme. She was really good at that, but she wasn't great at taking letters and sounding, putting the sounds together. And so she was 
referred for a program within our district because at the time at five, if you are in kindergarten, five or six, and you are struggling with learning to read by the end of kindergarten, so you're nearly six, depending on when your birthday is, it's suggestive for you to be able to know how to read. And if you're not, you're referred to a, a program and intervention during the summer. And my daughter really wanted to go to camp. And at the time, I was also teaching graduate school and noticing, I teach in the educational research department, and I was noticing that all of my students' culminating project with their research in their classrooms was this idea of parents wanting to be involved in the process of learning to read, but not having the tools to be successful. And so over this summer with my daughter, I, I also started to look for programs that would be appropriate for her. She was really interested in fairies and princesses. And so I couldn't find any. I think I found one book on princesses that would be appropriate for a, what's called a pre-emergent reader. And so I started taking pictures off the internet and creating my own books and using the Dolce series of words inclusive to teach her those 50 to 75, 50 to 80 words that she would need to know by memorization, included them in a book and basically created stepping stones together and in six weeks taught her to read. So she was highly successful because the program is so intuitive and I designed it as well. I had a, a, a first company that I, I also had focus groups called Orion's Mind. Um, I was the co-founder with a woman named Emily Paris. And this company focused on supplemental education, mostly for inner city children, but anyone whose test scores were at least two grade levels below where they should be and had a high enough population of students that qualified two grade levels below it. The district would have to use funding for Orion's Mind. They would have to use public funding that they received through governmental funding for privatization of learning within the schools. And so what I noticed from that group, uh, from this company, was that there was this need in three different places. And I said at the beginning, like, you, you notice something three times, you think, like, this is a good thing. And so my daughter and my students and this company, all parents saying, and or teachers saying that parents needed this to provide that step. And the reason that it's called Stepping Stones Together, you know, we have these milestones with our children, both teachers and, and parents and administrators. We have these moments with children and there's their priceless moments and their stepping stones. Right. And having we have, you know, riding a bike we do with our children. But for some reason, this idea that we used to have way back when and actually they still do in Canada of helping our children learn to read and being a partner with our schools, whether it be if they're appropriately ready in kindergarten or preschool or third grade partnerships to help our children with transparency, learn things and skills together. It's been, it's been lost. And so that's kind of why Stepping Stones Together emerged and why I created the program. I, I want to hit on a little more the idea of how essential it is for parents to be involved. They can't, this isn't just a job for the teachers at school. The no. parents really need to be hands-on with making sure their kids not just can form words and sentences, but like you said, the comprehension is so important. Sure. So it's not just that, that it gives them one-on-one -on -one opportunities, but the whole process, parents modeling that this is an important thing for them, it becomes an important to the child. It's so natural to want to please our parents or show them that we're, that we can do something. And there's so many opportunities in our, our world to do that. Unfortunately, learning to read and reading in general 
it doesn't seem to be this partnership anymore. And it's not for lack of trying. I think that teachers do a really good job of providing things for parents to do. The problem is when it gets home, the parent doesn't know what to do with it. And so again, the really transparent directions are an important piece of the puzzle that I feel is lacking. So a lot of times when things come home, that includes parent involvement with reading, the directions change from day to day. There's usually something called a baggy book system, especially in kindergarten, first grade, and sometimes even in second, where the book that's received by the child is in a little lucite something. And there's a game possibly, or I explained, you know, that ring of words on a, on a ring and there's a book and maybe some directions, but the directions are constantly changing and the parent may be totally lost or feeling really uncomfortable with how to help their child with that skill. My program, there's five easy steps and one fun game, and they repeat the same book two days in a row, which repetition is the beginning step of learning to read. And just a couple points about reading in general that I picked up through doing all the research I did for this program. I, I shared briefly about the, um, the black and white books. My books also, they print out or are online with the child's name, which is essential. It gives ownership of something, having a book with your name on it. Another part of it, which is really important that are explicitly shared in the directions is pointing. So there's actually a lot of research too. You could read books to your kids all through their life, but if they don't know how to read, they're not going to learn to read by you reading them books. They need to experience that with you. And so physically putting your finger on a word and making them accountable for that word on the page is important for them to understand that words have spaces. We don't even think about that when we're starting, you know, when we're so removed from learning to read, that there's spaces in between words and that we read from left to right. And that whole tracking is something you have to teach. Making predictions is something you have to teach. So look, we do what's called a picture walk, having kids going through and pointing to each word of a title and then having them make a prediction about a book. That is setting the stage for having to make predictions as they read anything with life or thinking about it in their own way and making it personable, that reading comprehension piece. Looking at each page and reading the words and looking at the pictures or simply before we even start looking at the pictures because in early childhood and in early literacy, the pictures tell the story. Now you don't want to focus completely on just the pictures, but knowing that they correspond highly to the words. So if you're struggling on a word, usually in an early literacy book, if you look at the picture of the word you're struggling, the characters on the page are probably doing whatever action or verb that the book is actually sharing. So there's a lot of repetition and then organic sentence structure. And I touched on this when we spoke earlier, but this idea that the sentences in an early childhood book should repeat themselves so that a child is getting used to an organic sentence structure of a subject and a predicate, understanding that there's end marks on the page and where those end marks are located, that a, a sentence starts with a capital. So those early skills are picked up on. And then at the end of a story, it's asking reading comprehension questions, but then having them write. And initially, kids aren't learning to write. They have really brave writing skills, and which is a lot of times what they say in kindergarten or even in pre-K. And so the idea is there's a picture that they're illustrating and they dictate a sentence of whatever higher order thinking skills you're asking them to explain their understanding of a text. And you're writing the sentence, you're reading it by pointing to each word that they suggest, and then they're drawing the illustration and then they're rereading the sentence that you helped them write. And so all these pieces make it 
a complete literacy experience, which they can't always get in a classroom. Back to the idea of we're segmented because we're so connected to a time frame that's allowed in a school for literacy in general. So you have the aha moment with your daughter. You then build this program. What I'm curious about is how does it become a real thing? How does it become a business? Because so many folks have ideas, but they don't always know what to do with them. When you had it put together, where did you take it? What did you do next? Sure. So as I mentioned, I I had an initial company and so, which was quite successful. So I felt like I could kind of lean on some of those people to ask questions. And then I, I went to experts and really thought like, is this a good program? So I kind of looked to those who I respected in the field that I was focusing on and asked them, is this a good idea? I had people pilot my program, but I I had others use it, friends of mine with their children, ask them questions. I sought out people to help with publicity. I looked to a website design team, you know, and and all those pieces kind of, they, they take money, but it's also trying to find the right people. And unfortunately, initially, I thought that the website, it was really important that it be fantastical, that it it be something where you felt like you were going inside a story and something that would really capture the attention, but also the imagination of the child who was reading. And so I hired a web design team that I thought had experience at the time with e-commerce, which is what you have to create when you're asking people to purchase something online. And Unfortunately, I learned through a really hard lesson that they did not. My company was shown on a a major news production where there's the opportunity each day for someone in your community to shine by being represented as someone to know in the Chicago area, which is where I live. And my site at the time had 5,000 people who went to it wanting to purchase the site and my site crashed. So they were unable to purchase. And obviously like anyone in trying to purchase anything online, if something, if you want to buy something and you can't, the likelihood of you going back is very slim. And so I had to really understand that although I, it's important to be loyal and it's important to go with good leads from people you trust, know that you're going to get burned sometimes. And I think it makes you I don't know. I think that grit's a really important thing. And I think that all your failures help you with your successes. This opportunity to speak with you is, is kind of one of those things, you know, you find people and you believe in people and it's kind of at the core of what's important to me, just never giving up and continuing to put one foot in front of the other. So my advice for people who, who want to try something is, you know, nothing happens without action. So the, the first part of that piece is, really getting all the ideas out in more than your head and then discussing them with someone, having them written down, having an action plan and kind of not just short term where you want to go, but long term, where do you see it growing? And, you know, I think incrementally those, those changes can happen for you, but it's not, it's on a sprint, it's a marathon and things happen in their own time. And I really do believe that. Do you have a favorite book? Oh my God. Yes, I do. I actually have a first edition of The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Oh, wow. And that's my favorite book. And I've read it at least five times, you know, passages at different times, but at least five times the whole way through. And what I love about books and about literature is that you find something new each time. 
And as you have your own experiences through life, things may have a deeper meaning to you and some things don't. And as you evolve and change, so do the books that you read, which makes them, you know, amazing at all times. What can we expect next from Stepping Stones Together? I'd love to get the program. It's, it's been used by my own district, a small district in Illinois. It's been used by different people throughout Illinois area. I'd love to get the company into the hands of a larger district or Head Start program or someone that's willing to give it a chance, even as a pilot, to really see if it can be successful for a large population of students. Because it's it was never intended to be anything more than just a, a resource that really empowers children and parents to encounter this truly priceless moment of learning to read together. Wow, what a woman, what a worthy mission, and what a special service she's providing. Maybe you're a parent with a little one that's struggling to master the written word. Maybe you're your own special somebody with a similarly brilliant idea that the world needs as badly as it needs the Stepping Stones Together program. Either way, I hope this chat got you inspired. I know it did me. I'm looking at a whole shelf of beautiful books over there that I'm suddenly over-eager to jump back into. And if you are a parent, teacher, or education professional interested in Dr. Erica Burton's ingenious program, today is your lucky day. As an interested supporter of the show and early literacy, The Good Doctor is offering a full year of the Stepping Stones Together program for the same price as your normal 60-day access. That's right. Listeners of The Corner Booth can head over to SteppingStonesTogether.com and through the month of March use redemption code THECORNERBOOTH, all caps, all one word when ordering, to enjoy a full year of Stepping Stones Together access for the usual 60-day price. Now you can't beat that with a B-A-T. Sound it out now. That. I want to thank my guest today, the one and only Dr. Erica Burton. I want to thank everybody listening for snuggling up and settling in. Now, go dust off that copy of your favorite book. Enjoy a couple of chapters, and we'll see you next time, right here in the corner booth. Last call, everybody. I don't remember what I did.